Hey everybody, I just wanted to let you know about our new page on Patreon.com. If you enjoy the podcast and if you enjoyed it through the years, please consider heading over to Patreon.com slash 1000RP and becoming a patron of our podcast. This will enable us to upkeep our equipment, uh, help with costs on hosting, and also help us purchase the music that we play on the show. So if you have enjoyed the podcast, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash 1000RP and becoming a patron of the 1000 Recordings Podcast. Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to 1000 Recordings Podcast, episode 53. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always every week, is teen idol Mitchell Davis. Yeah, I'll, take, I'll definitely take that, except for the, <laughs> the back end of that, where most of them wind up in jail or, or rehab. <laughs> <Right>. or... <laughs> How's it going? It's going good, man. How are you? Good, good. Uh, it's been busy last week or so but uh yeah i'm doing good good man um this week on the podcast we have three new albums from tom moon's book 1000 recordings to hear before you die the first one we're going to cover is bobby darren his album that's all then we're going to look at reverend gary davis his album harlem street singer and finally we're going to end with miles davis kind of blue so, which will start a Miles Davis-a-thon here on the show. Yeah, pretty yeah, much. That's gonna be fun. <laughs> uh, but yeah, let's start with Bobby Darren. Uh, his album "That's All" released in 1959, and Bobby Darren was born Walden Robert Casato in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he lived from 1936 to 1973. Only 37 when he died. Yeah, that's pretty tragic i guess we can talk about that later yeah. but uh um, yeah i think actually he was born in the bronx too this oh man the the bronx and brooklyn don't get them started with each other oh yeah <laughs> yeah 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 well his his maternal grandfather was like a gangster or something yeah um, yeah yeah uh <laughs> you know so yeah you know he came out of that uh scene mm-hmm. um he uh kind of got his start in the business as a songwriter for Connie Francis. And uh, he broke out on his own with this hit, this sort of rock and roll hit that he wrote in 1958 called Splish Splash. Yeah, yeah, which a lot of people, you know, have heard, you know, here and there. So classic kind of like in that, like you said, in that whole teen idol phase, that's, I'm pretty sure that's what they they geared that towards, you know, um, before he went on to be the, you know, the Bobby Darren, you know. Yes, Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. But uh this album that we're going to talk about was his true breakthrough, I think, that made him sort of world famous. Um he was uh a very versatile performer. So he would, you know, he started out kind of with this teen idol-y rock and roll kind of stuff. Um this album is more big band jazz type crooner type stuff. <clears throat> he also in the 60s recorded folk music and country music and so he was kind of very versatile interested in different genres um he became politically active in the 60s he i thought this was interesting he was with robert kennedy in 1968 when robert kennedy was assassinated yeah, yeah. and uh he also had a movie and television career so a lot like these other stars that came up in the late fifties, um, like Elvis and others, um, they got sort of drafted into movies and television. Yeah. And, uh, his first big role was in this movie come September and with Sandra D who he married. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then had a, ch- and had a child with had too. A child. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. What else did you uncover about Bobby Darren? Oh, just the, the, the issue of his songwriting, um, uh, and the Brill building. I, I did not know that he was in that collective, which if people don't know, the, the Brill building was like this building in New York where pretty much every famous songwriter of that era sort of kind of came through, uh, you know, Carol King, Burt Bacharach, you know, 
and, and, and the like. I mean, tons of people who wrote, you know, amazing music that are, you know, songs that are, you know, considered, you know, American classics, if you will. And, um, you know, there, there's so much history in that bill and apparently they're renovating some big corporation bought it, you know, and they're, they're doing renovations on it. Uh, also Don Kirshner was, a uh, sort of like a, a partner of his in songwriting who, if people know Don Kirshner, he had a, a show back in the seventies called Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was kind of like the midnight special and shows like that where, where artists would play live and almost, you know, you know, all these different, you know, rock artists would come through and play. And there's just so much history with, with him on the songwriting side, as well as the performing and acting side. I mean, he was just really kind of the man, you know, of that era, especially for someone who, who really had such a, a brief span in his career. He was really busy, yeah. you know, in those years. I mean, you know, with all that going on and all these people that he kind of had tied to him, Wayne Newton, uh, you know, did Donka Shane and, and went on to be, you know, kind of like one of the Las Vegas, you know, staples along with Bobby Darren and, and Rosie Greer, who, you know, who some people know Rosie Greer from, you know, playing football and, and needle point, but had a music career also that was tied to Bobby Darren where he produced some of Rosie Greer's records and Roger McGuinn from the birds, um, you know, lots of people that he kind of mentored and produced and, and worked with. I mean, it's just an amazing history for a guy who, for the most part, most people think of Mac the knife and, you know, splish bash and, and just kind of just, you know, Frank Sinatra jr. That was another thing that he got tagged with. It was, you know, just the young yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Frank Sinatra. So, you know, but mm-hmm. just a prolific guy. I mean, just, you know, interesting reading the history on him, you know, away from the, the obvious, you know, things that people know about him. There's so much that I did not know, you know, until I started reading. So, Oh yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> let's start with the first track. Cool. Uh, we're going to listen to Mac the knife. Uh, this was a track that, uh, came from Kurt Vile's three penny opera. I'd been recorded before by a lot of people, but, um, his version is sort of this hip, you know, at that time, you know, hip, cool, jazzy, big band thing. You know, it, we've got to, when we hear this, we've got to kind of take it for for the year that it came out. Because yeah. since then, you know, this style that Bobby Darren came out with, it was so cool at the time, you know, since... Uh, it's passe now. Oh, yeah. it's so passe. It's, and, you know, it's, you know, we, we live in a time when you know, a thousand lesser lounge singers tried to co-opt this style and kind of ruined it. And we live in a time when, you know, after Bill Murray made fun of it on Saturday Night Live and, you know, we, we live in that time, but we got to sort of put ourselves in the original time, you know, when this was new and hip and cool. And before all of that stuff happened to this style, you know, yeah, just you, you, all, all you have to do is like, say like watch Jersey boys. And, and that attitude has, has it was influ- he influenced so many people, you know, obviously those guys, you know, you know, big time. I mean, there's so many people that, that came, like you said, came after him that copied that style, the, like what, what you would consider vamping jazz pop, where it was just kind of like, you know, very cool, very kind of, you know, loosely, you know, him together words that that you know you're kind of like what is he singing about i don't know it's but it sounds cool you know almost almost like a like a beat poet you know and i mean that that's kind of you know leaning on that era too but yeah i mean that that was one of those things that when it came out like you said it was for the era that it came out it was something that that was very fresh and very much something that people picked up on you know to be like you know hey that that i like that you know that's, yeah yeah <laughs> like I said, at the man, he, he at the time he was the man. He was cool, he was hip, um, and this particular track, "Mac the Knife," spent number one or a uh, nine weeks at number one on the charts. It sold mm-hmm. two million copies. Um, the record got uh, the Grammy for the record of the year in 1960. He also won the Grammy for best new artist 
And this song has since been awarded with a Grammy Hall of Fame award. So, I mean, this was, you know, this propelled him into sort of worldwide fame. Yeah. Initially, he did not want to release this as a single. Right. Right. He wanted to obviously record it, but they the record company kind of leaned on him to to put it out, which is really funny because he was one of those guys that, you know, kind of as success came to him, began to get more creative control over what he could you know, do or not do. And um, this was a song that maybe, you know, wouldn't have been as successful initially because of him, you know, not really wanting to, you know, release it, you know, as a, as a single, which is funny. You know, it's, it's amazing how, yeah. how history kind of, you know, rolls out, you know, with, with certain things like this. Like you said, the, you know, the, the awards that he got. And then even later in, in life, you know, after he passed, he got, he got a, Grammy Hall of Fame award mm-hmm. for this song, which is that's really cool. Yeah, know? yeah, 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 man. So let's check this out. Cool. This is Mac the Knife, as recorded by Bobby Darren. Oh, the shark baby has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie baby, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bite with its teeth, baby, scarlet billows start to spread. Fancy gloves, though, wears old Maggie baby, so there's never. Never a trace of red Now on the sidewalk uh-huh, Ooh, Sunday morning uh-huh, Lies a body Just oozing life Can someone sneaking Round the corner Could that someone Be Mac the Knife There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just drooping on down. Oh, that cement is just—it's there for the weight there. Five will get you ten old Mackies back in town. Now you hear about Louis Miller—he disappeared, babe. After drawing out. All his modern cash And now Maggie Heath's been Just like a shell Could it be a boy's done something rash And we just heard Mac the Knife by Bobby Darren And we're going to move on to Beyond the Sea and uh, this is another, well, I guess you could say cover. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a jazzy English version of Charles Tenet's French hit called La Mer, which means the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What did you think of this one? The the thing that, that jumped out at me with this song is that um, I was I was just kind of going through, you know, this record about a couple of weeks ago. And this song came on, and my five-year-old son raises up and goes, Nemo. And I was like, huh? He goes, Nemo. I was like, what are you talking about? Finding Nemo. And I was like, really? So I look, and sure enough, this song is featured in Finding Nemo. (laughs) (laughs) The movie, you know, where, you know, Ellen DeGeneres and, Mm -hmm. um, oh, God, what's the guy that plays Newman? Anyway, it's it's a song that kind of, you know, hit me is is funny where my five-year-old knew this song you know where i i sort of did but didn't you know and and seeing how how bobby Darren's you know sort of influence is still carried on where the popularity of this song you know hasn't really faded at all you know as a matter of fact it's kind of gotten a new life and i i just thought that was hilarious i mean you know and and the fact that you know the the way that he sings and 
in the the casual kind of carefree way that he croons in this song it, it is easy to like and like i said i i just thought that was really really funny you know that like i said my my five-year-old is is a bobby darren fan and you know probably really doesn't even know who bobby darren oh, is. oh yeah yeah <laughs> so and i mean just the way that that his his talent sort of you know is is a part of american you know history and 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 you know sort of woven into the fabric of this country is a, it's just amazing to me i mean you know and the and the guy's kind of you know you know been you know criticized for for this and that you know where he was you know just you know a good looking face and and really wasn't that talented but he really was i mean just you know on the songwriting end if anything else i mean the guy wrote some really great songs and was able to you know profit from that in a big way i mean he had a a very successful you know publishing career as you know a songwriter and then you know as a performer i mean i mean he was just a staple in las vegas oh yeah, yeah. He was just one yeah, of those yeah. guys that just he lived there i mean he was you know you know one of the guys that kept vegas going so you know like i said i it, it's it's interesting to just kind of look back because he he died so young. I mean, he, you know, was kind of sickly all his life where, um, you know, he had issues, uh, with his health. I mean, from, I guess, day one where he had a rheumatic fever, I think, I think it's like yeah, an inflammatory yeah. disease that right. it affects the joints or how heart valves in his case, I think it was his heart. And, um, when he died, he, he was supposed to be taking some kind of antibiotics and, and he, you know, he didn't take him right and had to go back in the hospital right. and, and never came out. So, I mean, the, I mean, 37, I mean, that's, it's unbelievable. I mean, that guy, he did a lot yes. in just the few years that he was on this planet. I mean, that, that's one thing that I can't really get past is that he, he was, he was a giant for the years that he was on this earth. I mean, and there wasn't very many, Yep. but, um, man, you know, just, an amazing talent. Yeah, um, for sure. Yep, yep. Yeah, man. Let's uh, let's check this out. Cool. This is uh, Bobby Darren's "Beyond the Sea." Somewhere beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me, my lover stands on golden sand. Watches the ships that go sailing Somewhere beyond the sea She's there watching for me If I could fly like birds on high Then straight to her arms I'd go sailing It's far Beyond the star, it's near beyond the moon I know beyond a doubt My heart will lead me there soon We'll meet beyond the shore We'll kiss just as before Happy we'll be beyond the sea And never again I'll go sailing And we just heard Beyond the Sea by Bobby Darren, and we're going to move on to the Reverend Gary Davis, the album Harlem Street Singer, released in 1960. And Reverend Gary Davis, he was uh, another interesting sort of character. Um, he was born in 1896 in Lawrence, South Carolina, died in 1972. He was only one of eight children that uh, his mother had that survived. Um, he was blind from infancy and, uh, he had a pretty hard life early on. 
Um, his father was apparently shot by the sheriff when he was only 10 years old. Um, like I said, he was blind. Um, he was apparently poorly treated by his mother. So he was raised by his grandmother, you know, just, you know, a hard life or, you know, from, from (laughs) day one, pretty much. Um, but, uh, he was really highly influential as a musician and yeah. uh, saw a uh, sort of revival of his music and career in the 1960s with the whole folk music movement sort of revival thing that went on. Um, but he kind of started his career in the mid-20s when he moved to Durham, North Carolina, which was uh, a hot spot kind of for the blues at that time. And uh, he played there and enjoyed, you know, some success until the Great Depression. Uh and then kind of faded into obscurity. Uh, in the 40s, he moved to New York, uh, where he lived in Harlem. And for about 20 years, he pretty much was a street musician. I mean, he played just on the streets of Harlem, on the street yeah. corners of Harlem for for about 20 years. And uh, he, until he was sort of rediscovered in the 60s. Um, and at that time, several of his songs... Uh, were recorded by big artists like Mamas and the Papas and Bob Dylan, and he played some festivals and stuff like that uh, in the 60s. Uh, yeah, what do you think of Reverend Gary Davis? Uh, just an extraordinary story. I mean, the, 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 the point of where he goes to New York and begins playing on the streets, you know, whether, whether the weather was nice or, or terrible, that's one thing that blows my mind because you have to think, you know, it's New York. It's not like, you know, just any old city. I mean, and it's Harlem, you know, where it's, 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 I'm sure it's tough, you know, just, just trying to make it wherever. And he's blind, you know, I mean, he, I mean, he's doing what he has to do to survive. Cause I'm sure, I mean, as he's playing on the street, you know, he's, he's probably got his case thrown open and people, you know, throw coins or whatever in and, you know, he's just going day to day. And this is for years that he does this. And I mean, it, it it's it's a, a way I'm sure that he just gradually, you know, would hone his skills throughout the years. And I mean, got better and better and better. And, um, yeah. you know, it's it's a testament to see also how many people he went on to influence. Like you said, you know, Bob Dylan and you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, I think Ry Cooter, a lot of people that, that listen to him, you know, Taj Mahal, that's another one. When I listen to Taj Mahal, I hear, I mean, I hear this guy, you know, dead on almost where even the singing style, I mean, is, is very close. And uh, it's amazing to see how many people he influenced. And I mean, he, he's sort of like one of the first, if you will, blind blues singers. I mean, even though he, he was kind of more on the the gospel side after he, he had a conversion, a religious conversion. But his music still was very blues influenced, you know, even though oh, yeah. he mostly sang about, you know, Jesus and, and going to heaven and, and how he's a changed man. I mean, mo- mostly inspirational music, sung in a in a hard manner at times, but not really, you know, coming from a hard place, if that makes sense. You know, I mean, he didn't sound bitter, you know, in his no, his delivery of the song. All. I mean, yeah. he 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 sounded really really grateful, even though he had a gruff voice, you know. And uh, yes, I would there's agree. so much history on this guy. I mean, when you go back, first of all, look how long ago this was when he first started, you know. And and looking at the people who influenced him, there's some names where I read these names, I'm like who the hell are these people? And then I start reading about them, and it, it's really cool to learn the history of music. On, on this side, especially, you know, American music that you'll never hardly read about in a history book in school, you know, I mean, ah, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really grateful to kind of, you know, have this included, you know, in the book where, you know, I, I never really would have, have thought to, you know, think about Gary Davis, you know, outside of this book. So it's, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, this, and like I said, his, his style of playing, you know, is, I wish I could play like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah, where yeah. I could just sit down with a guitar and just go, you know, and, and just play like that all day. And I mean, you know, I, I wish I could play like that. <laughs> <you know>? uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we're going to start with uh, 
I belong to the band Hallelujah. So this is a very gospel um, with a sort of ragtime accompaniment in the guitar. Yeah. And uh, it, it, this guy was just super talented. I mean, just like like you were saying. Um, you know, he, he had a very distinctive voice, really gravelly at times. You know, but it's no matter how... I don't know, gravelly or strained, you know, it sounded, his voice is always dead on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And uh, he's also, just like you were saying, again, he's an awesome guitar player. Mm -hmm. I mean, he developed this sort of uh, style where he played with his thumb and index finger only. Um, But the accompaniment, man, it's it's, it's very involved. I mean, he's not just sitting up there strumming chords. Not at all. You know, it's a very involved accompaniment. Um, and the fact that he can do this, you know, multi-voice complicated stuff on guitar and sing at the same time so easily, you know, and so effortlessly, um, uh, just from a musical standpoint, just from a musician standpoint, it's really impressive. (laughs) Yeah. And like (laughs) I said, the streets of New York, streets of Harlem, whether it, whether it's bacon, hot sun or whether it's pouring down rain, the guy stayed there and he, he played. I mean, do you know what kind of discipline that takes? But I mean, in, I mean, and maybe in his mind, he felt like that was his calling, and God had blessed him to do this, so he didn't take it lightly. And I mean, I, I see that, and I, I talk, I'm going to talk about discipline with him, but also with with Miles in a second, where it it's 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 so I have so much respect for someone who makes up their mind to do something. And they stick to it no matter what. And this guy had so much discipline and had made up his mind to to make himself be the best that he could be, no no matter what. I mean, his obviously he had an issue with being blind, and that's something he could have been like, well, I'm just going to sit in my room and, and cry. And no, the guy, he he took his talent and he, he made it better. And he went out and he, for years, I'm sure there was there was nothing just you know, standing on the corner and then eventually he got a breakthrough and now really he's, he's just a legend, you know, I mean, in, and I'm sure he would, you know, appreciate, you know, us talking about him probably today or maybe he wouldn't care. I don't know, but <laughs> it's, it's amazing just to see how, how he could dedicate himself and, and go through, you know, despite, you know, I'm sure people, you know, probably talk crazy to him sometimes, maybe even, you know, roughed him up, you know, cause I'm mean, like, say he's, He's a blind guy on the street playing guitar. I mean, you got all kinds of people that, you know, are up to no good. And I mean, that that's that takes some courage, you know. That that takes some, you know, stick to itiveness. Where he could have said, you know, forget this, man. I'm gonna get killed out here, but he didn't. And I mean, he yeah. it, it paid off. You know, it paid off. You know, in a ways probably he never would have imagined. You know. Yeah. So uh, that's a great point, man. Um, with that, let's hear the first track. This is I Belong to the Band Hallelujah by Reverend Gary Davis. Hallelujah. 
And we just heard Reverend Gary Davis, Harlem, uh, not Harlem Street Singer. That's the album. I belong to the band. Hallelujah is the name of the song. Uh, The next song we're going to listen to is 12 Gates to the City. And uh, this is pretty much a pure blues tune. Um, I really like this because it really shows off uh, his his versatility and his just command of this style of the blues. I mean, he, you know, the the previous one we heard was a great gospel tune, and he is, you know, one of the showed himself off as one of the best probably ragtime guitar players. But I mean, this really shows that he was probably one of the greatest blues men ever as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't know. What, what did you think of this one? This is, uh, I, I love this one, but yeah, I mean, it is, it's, it's like a, a great Testament, like you said, to his style of play and, and how, you know, not only just a great player, but a great singer, you know, where, you know, he could, you know, like I said, really, 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 you know, put himself into the performance where, you know, he is, you know, it's just obviously on this record, it's just him and a guitar, but it seems like there's so much more than that. And then also too, you know, I think they recorded this album in like three hours. That is ridiculous. I mean, this whole record, you know, done in three hours, (laughs) you know, it's amazing, but also kind of not surprising, you know, given that he spent the previous 20 years playing these songs, probably every single day, you know, yeah, and then going going back to the whole discipline thing where it's just like, it's just, this is just what he does, you know? And I mean, you listen to it and and it's, it's amazing to hear and you, you hear the guy's talent, but you don't really think about what he put into, you know, the preparation to get to this point, you know, and, and until you really kind of look, you know, back into his history and it's extraordinary. The, the guy is, he's, he's really like one of the most amazing players. I think, you know, you'll ever, ever kind of see, you know, and I mean, that going back to the whole blind thing again, I mean, sometimes it seems like when, when people have to go through something like that and their senses are heightened, you know, like, you know, not like other people that, that can see, you know, that can kind of add to an element of, you know, someone's talent. I mean, that, that may or may not have been the case with him, but I, I would, I would, you know, think that it probably was, you know, uh, there's a guy named Raul Mendon, uh, who is like a, a guitar player of, of now who he, he reminds me so much of that guy of this guy where he he's, he's also blind and an extraordinary guitar player and singer, you know, and plays percussion while he sings and, and plays guitar. I mean, it's just one of those deals where you you know somebody is is working on what they do daily, daily, every day, where they, you know, they may not have a breakthrough every day, but every day they're trying to to get better. And I mean, I just I have so much respect for that kind of discipline where someone can can really kind of hone their style and and get to sound like this. So, Yeah, awesome. Let's listen to this last track from Reverend Gary Davis. This is 12 Gates to the City. Oh, what a beautiful city. 
And we just heard 12 Gates to the City by Reverend Gary Davis. And we're going to move on to our last album of the podcast, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, uh, released in 1959. I think it's interesting that all the albums we're talking about here were released right at the same time. Yeah. (laughs) 59 and 60. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So everything we're talking about here uh was going on right at the same time uh, yeah that doesn't happen real often uh, it doesn't <laughs> no um so miles davis kind of blue so how i thought and i i was going to talk to you about this before the podcast and i forgot <laughs> but uh how i was going to approach this is uh we've got a lot of miles davis coming up now in the book the next show after this one is going to be nothing but miles davis miles, yeah so i thought miles too yeah yeah so i thought we would save the personal stuff and the bio stuff about miles for next show. Yeah. And really talk about kind of blue here because kind of blue is such a giant album that we could almost, uh, approach it like, like an artist in itself, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's what we're going to do here. So miles Davis kind of blue. Um, uh, you know, it's been called by many critics and jazz historians as the greatest jazz album ever made yeah yeah. um it's the biggest selling jazz album of all time yeah um it uh represented a big shift in style in jazz at the time definitely you know the 50s was uh was dominated by bebop and offshoots of bebop um which really was started by charlie parker and dizzy gillespie in the late 40s which sort of really focused on virtuosic playing it was very frenetic it was uh very complex it was based on a series of complex chord changes and 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 this kind of thing and miles got tired of that yeah and he he wanted to do something that yeah go ahead he weighed anchor (laughs) yeah 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 that's what i'd like to think of with this record it was it was like Jazz is on a stormy, a very stormy sea or a very rapid river even. And Miles is like, you know what? That's enough of this. And and I that's one of the things about him that I so love is that Miles was he was really fearless where he would break away, you know, up until his death, where he would just break away from the pack and is like, I'm Miles Davis and I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. Well, he was, so, dude, he was a reactionary, like th- through the, his entire career. Yeah. He just spent his entire career as just sort of like starting stuff and then reacting against it. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. So, I mean, he was involved in the start of bebop, then he reacted against it and created this album and created this cool jazz movement. And then he got tired of that and reacted against it yeah. in the late sixties yeah. and created the psychedelic mo- movement and which really turned into the fusion movement of the seventies and the, and, you know, and just on and on, you know, he was an innovator and a reactionary and, um, uh, yeah, this album, um, let me read the, uh, it's got an, a really just amazing, uh, list of people that played on the album which oh, all became most, most definitely yeah. yeah which all became legendary jazz musicians in their own right yeah um so coltrane. of course yeah it's miles davis on trumpet um john coltrane on tenor saxophone uh cannonball adderley on alto saxophone yeah. uh paul chambers on bass Jimmy Cobb on drums, Bill Evans on piano. Yeah. Um, and then on Freddie Freeloader, we have a different pianist, Winton Kelly. Um, and it, this is just, a, I don't know, like the. It's a legendary. It's, the, like, it's like the movie. Super Friends. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way to put the jazz Super Friends. <laughs> and, and, and I mean. Obviously, you know, so many of those names, I mean, big names, but Bill Evans, Bill Evans, I mean, I, I call Bill Evans the master. I mean, he, he, he is very, very crucial to this record. I mean, obviously it's, it's Miles's record and there's some other names on here that are huge, but Bill is so important to this record and the, what I would say is the open endedness of it where apparently when they they went in to record this miles didn't say anything to anybody about the material nothing which i'm like 
how do you do that? I mean, nothing about what it was going to be like, no, no sheet music, no nothing. Well, you know? okay, let's address that because that this is the story that I've told for a long time. But according to my research, this is kind of a myth. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's not far off from the reality, but it's not quite that exact okay much so basically what happened was uh miles apparently did like conceive these songs just hours before they were recorded okay but he what he did is he wrote down some sets of scales and then um he would basically give these scales to musicians and this is you know the scales that we're working with and then he would verbally say sort of talk out the the tune so he said, okay. this is the form. This is what's happening here. This is what we're doing in the head, which is the head is like the opening sort of musical statement, you know. So he gave them a rough blue, okay. a blueprint, let's okay. say, then, uh, to go off of. And then the other myth is that every single tune on this album was recorded in on the first take. So that's another myth. Um, okay. Uh, they they were recorded, but like I said, not far off from the truth. So they were recorded in several takes, and you know some of the pieces are, uh, you know, there's like a, a take from here edited into a take from this other take and stuff like that. But uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that many takes. I mean, basically, the album was recorded in two sessions on March second which was the first side of the album. And then April 22nd, 1959, which is the second side of the album. So it was, you know, it's close to the myth, but the myth is not quite representative of what's actually happened. So the, but the pre-preparation was very minimal, very minimal. Yes. Yeah. And I mean that, I think that's still, even that still kind of boggles my mind where he got, he got everybody in and they were kind of like, you know, sort of, you know, improvised. Not, I mean, not improvising is not really the right word. I mean, like you said, they, they, they had, they had sort of like a, a mind of, of where they were going to be or what they were going to do, but there was still sort of like a, a newness to it, uh, a spontaneity to it that, I think was not really, you know, expected, you know, originally, but it, it turned out to where, you know, you, you realize the talent of Miles Davis where he could say so much with one note, you know, as yeah. opposed to, like you said, the, the, the frantic nature of, of a lot of bebop where people had to just play themselves into the ground. And, and Miles is going to, you know, once again, redefine cool. I was talking to a friend of mine earlier this week about, how that's another thing in his career where he was constantly redefining what cool meant. And on this record, he does it in a way that it, it was not only a big influence on the jazz scene, but I think miles influenced, you know, other musicians as far as rock musicians and, and even maybe like artists that, that would like paint and sculpt. I mean, he was that kind of influence where he could just turn people around to thinking you know differently on whatever it was they were doing and and didn't want things to ever ever get stagnant or stale you know but but still be good still be stylish still be you know you know worth listening to this this record for for sure is worth listening to even now you know i could put it on right now and my whole household would be fine with it. I guarantee you. <laughs> Even people yeah, who, yeah. you know, don't really, you know, I don't really like jazz, but I like this, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, I saw you uh, posted that performance of So What from YouTube on the Facebook. Yeah. Man, that is so cool to watch because you were talking about, you know, redefining cool and stuff. I mean, those guys cannot be cooler. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you watch and they'll just you know, like for instance, when Coltrane is soloing or whatever, and the rest of them are just like standing in the background, just sort of like Mm. talking and smoking and just, (laughs) just being like super cool. Like they could not have been cooler. Um, Yeah. And again, the the whole discipline of, of, you know, what we were talking about with Gary Davis, these guys were very disciplined. I mean, you know, discipline, but, but, and I, I think with, with discipline becomes love where you have a tremendous love for what you're doing. 
you know, and and that times will carry you through some tough issues. I'm sure playing with Miles was a bitch. I know that he could not be more demanding at times, and at other times just like be, you know, okay, we're we're good. Let's just let's just take it easy. You know, we're we're fine. You know, I I liken Miles to um, Stanley Kubrick sometimes, <laughs> where huh. I'm sure that guy. He was he was horrible. He was horrible to work for. But then there were other times where it's just like, you know, let's just let's just see what happens, you know. I'm yeah. I'm I'm game for whatever. You know, I mean he he just had like that kind of mind, you know, where you knew he he had a hard time even keeping up with himself. But at the same time he he really wanted to come up with something that was really brilliant and really different and really amazing, you know. Yeah. And uh and like I said he he was that way I'm pretty sure until he died. You know, I mean to the day he died, you know, just anyway. You yeah. Know, not going like you said yeah. stay on the album not on the man. Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> um well let's move on to our first track that we're going to listen to called So What um with an intro by Gil Evans who he collaborated with. He was a jazz composer and arranger. And we're going to talk a lot more about Gil Evans next time when we listen to Sketches of Spain. But um so this intro was penned by Gil Evans in the rest of the tune by Davis. Um, this is just a perfect example of this modal jazz that uh, Davis was moving to in this album. Um, the whole thing is what's called Dorian mode. So I thought I'd just briefly explain what, what that means, what a mode is. So if you go to a piano and you're able to find a middle C and you just play all the white keys ascending till you get to the next C that's that's a major scale that's a C major scale okay that's like what they would use typically you know major and minor scale okay okay so then if you move up one key one white key to D okay and you play all the white keys again from D to D this is a mode. This is called Dorian mode, which is basically what this tune is in. Mm. Um, so these are modes. And then basically if you start on E and play all the white keys from E to E, this is a mode. If you start on F and play all the white keys from F to F, you know, this is the Lydian mode and etc. So these are what modes are. And what basically what the huge shift in focus here was that in Bebop, how the how the music was made and constructed was they came up with chords like they came up with a chord 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 and this would be like the progression that the musicians would improvise over and you have this chord progression that's what the tune was and the chord progression would repeat and you would you know solo over this chord progression right and in in miles's mind this was very uh constraining Right, because when you have the chords, you have a certain number of pitches that you can use, really, that will work over those chords. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so what he wanted to do is he wanted to just introduce these tunes that were in just these modes. There is no chord set chord progression here. We just have this mode, and you can do whatever you want within this mode. So the pianist can play whatever chords they want. You know that are built out of the notes in the mode the soloists can improvise over this mode it doesn't matter what chords playing you know what i mean it's yeah. just it's free it's laid back um you know i i sort of likened it to being an explorer where if like you're in a bebop group it'd be like being an explorer but only exploring like a little tight group of houses versus exploring a vast open wilderness with yeah. this new approach yeah. And uh that's what this was. Um and it really the whole album set the tone for this new style which would continue. Like we said, you know, all throughout the 60s and I mean really the influence of this album has not stopped. It has not no. diminished. It's still going on. People are still being influenced by this album. They're still writing music based on what Miles Davis did on this album still today and not just jazz and all kinds of genres. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, just, you're right. It's a, this is a heavy one. Um, just, uh, I, it blows my mind to think, like I said, the, 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 the preparation at, like you said, being at a, at a minimum of what they did going into this, 
it, it only speaks to the talent of the players, I think, and, and what they had in their minds and in their hearts that they could bring to this in a way that, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, it, it, it shouldn't have been as groundbreaking in a way, but I mean, obviously, you know, with, with the talent, I mean, they, they took what they had, you know, and I mean, it's almost like they, 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 they were fenced in, but they weren't, you know, if if that makes sense, you know? And I mean, what they did within the area that they could work was tremendous. You know, I mean, you know, I, I, I really just, I love this record, (laughs) you know, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those records I've, even as a child, when I really didn't understand, you know, what jazz was or what it meant, I had a love for the, the atmosphere that the sound of this record would create. If that makes sense, even because it does it, it creates an atmosphere, you know, an almost, you know, major spiritual shift, if you will, just just listening to the tone of it and, and the way it, it comes off. I mean, I, I I love it. I mean, still to this day, yeah. you know, so. Well, this is the first jazz album that I ever bought and heard. I bought it in like 94 when I was working with you Yeah. at the record store. Um, this song, So What, also sort of hold a special place for me uh when i first started learning to improvise uh when i i took this improvisation class you know at university of texas and this was one of the tunes that was presented to us as like you know this is how you do it and Mm -hmm. we really studied this tune and we for our final we had to um transcribe miles's solo by ear and then memorize it on our own instrument and play it for the final Uh. and so I like know this solo like the <laughs> like the back <laughs> of my hand, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, th- this is a a great tune and an amazing solo by Miles Davis. So let's hear this first track from Kind of Blue. This is so what.
And we just heard So What by Miles Davis. And we're going to move on to Blue in Green. Uh, this is a ballad. And uh, it features some absolutely beautiful playing from Davis and Bill Evans and John Coltrane. Uh, it really, uh, I mean, uh, it's it seems like a feature for Bill Evans for me. Yeah. You know, he's just, he is like... Uh, I don't know. He he's just he is this song really. I mean, uh, Miles and uh, John Coltrane solos are are beautiful, but I mean, Bill Evans is is the man on this song. Yeah. He he makes this song, and there's some authorship dispute on this song. You know, Miles Davis always said he wrote this song. Then Bill Evans came out and said, "Well, no, I wrote." half of this song and then then he said i wrote all of it and there's one instance where i guess later on bill evans confronted miles davis and said hey you owe me royalties for this song and so miles davis wrote him a check for 25 (laughs) dollars oh man that's funny (laughs) yeah which when we get into miles davis personal stuff that sounds like something he would do but oh yeah oh yeah uh I love, man, there's some stories that we'll, 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 as we go on, uh, some amazing stories about Miles Davis that, I mean, good and bad, like, you know, a story we'll talk about, not on the show, later about him and Mick Jagger. Uh, that, that's a good one. Um, anyway, let's, let, I don't want to get sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, this song, like I said, is a, is a kind of a showcase for Bill Evans. It really shows off his his really amazing, amazing melodic and harmonic sensibilities, you know, on the piano. Um, what do you think of a blue and green? Uh, this, it's why I call Bill Evans a master. Um, he really, if, if jazz were a language, nobody speaks it like Bill, you know, and as, as great as everybody else is on this record, he has a way of playing that is just brilliant to me. I mean, you know, no matter what kind of style, you know, of of jazz, if you would, nobody plays it to me quite like Bill Evans. I mean, he he has a nuance in the style of playing. It comes across really strong on this this track, where you you almost feel it coming out of him. <laughs> you know, he he's he's really brilliant in that sense of 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 giving up harmony and and melody and structure and song and i mean i I really every time i see his face every time i hear you know you know like two only people or or whatever from him i just think this guy is is the master when it comes to interpreting you know jazz as as a form if you would i mean some people probably i'm sure argue with that but i there's nobody quite like him to me when it comes to yeah. making this type of music. So absolutely. Uh, yeah, man. Okay. Let's hear this, this last track from kind of blue. This is blue and green.
And we just heard Blue and Green from Miles Davis. And that is going to do it for this week, Thousand Recordings Podcast number 53. If you'd like to send us an email, send one to 1000recordingspodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to join us on Twitter, you can do so at 1000RP. You can join us on Facebook where we post a lot of cool videos and have some discussion on there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, And you can support the show in a couple ways. You can go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. And if you leave us a review, we will read it on the show. And in addition to that, you can support us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 1000RP. And you can support us by pledging uh, a certain amount of money per episode that we do. So if you like what we do and you think it's worth a dollar an episode or $5 an episode or whatever, um, head on over to Patreon and you can help out the show in that way. So next week is our Davis-a-thon. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and uh, we're going to be talking about three albums of Miles Davis, Sketches of Spain, Highlights from the Plugged Nickel, and In a Silent Way. So yeah. um, that's going to cover a lot of ground um, f- as far as his career is concerned. Um, and yeah, it should be interesting. Yeah. 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 My, my five year old that I talked about is, is, is coming into the room to talk to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, yeah, um, I'm, I'm all yeah, that's, that's, man, I cannot wait. It's going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> just like I said, all the stories and, and just the, the talent that, that was Miles Davis is, you know, I cannot wait. It's going to be yeah, fun. It's going to be cool. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, until next time, uh, we'll be back with some awesome music from Tom Moon's book. And this is where I say later. Bye-bye.